we have to recognize not only that life is hard for everyone, but we also, as the church, have to do a better job of not uh, living into this materialistic, nationalistic, whateverlistic kind of mentality that we have taken and replace the gospel with that kind of stuff. And that's the problem with bootstrap theology is that we use those kinds of istic thinking to replace the heart of the gospel, which is God's love for all creation and God's desire to be reconciled with all things. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship has valued theological education as a vital component of vocational ministry preparation for more than 25 years. It puts these words to action by investing in students who are current and future ministry leaders in CBF Life. The fellowship awards up to 70 scholarships annually to Baptist students enrolled in the Master of Divinity degree program at an accredited institution of higher education. For more information about all that CBF offers students, visit cbf.net slash seminary resources. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Terrell Carter. We're going to be particularly talking about his new book, Taking Apart Bootstrap Theology, Gospel of Generosity and Justice. I was excited to have Terrell back on the program. If you missed it, we had him on the show in June of 2020 in episode 126. He talked about race and policing. So if you want to know a little bit more about his background, I would encourage you to go back and check out episode 126. You'll find his writings in Word and Way magazine and on our website, wordandway.org. In addition to being a contributing writer for Word and Way, Terrell is also the new executive director of Rise Community Development. He'll talk a, a bit about that in this episode. And he's pastor of Webster Groves Baptist Church in the St. Louis suburb of Webster Groves. But I was especially excited to talk to Terrell about his new book that's coming out later in April, Taking Apart Bootstrap Theology. I think he's dealing with some important issues, and particularly for the American Evangelical Church, things that have been mixed in to our understanding of the gospel, the Bible, and ultimately even God. And he's trying to help us to then tear those excesses off. I appreciate Terrell's writings, both in this book as well as for Word and Way, and so I was really excited to have this conversation with him. So here's my conversation with Terrell Carter, author of Taking Apart Bootstrap Theology. Well, Terrell, first of all, thanks for joining us back on the program. Thank you for having me uh, on again. It's the last time it was a great pleasure, and it's a great pleasure this time as well. Well, before we talk about your new book, which I'm excited to talk about, first of all, I know the past year has been a very unusual year for us all, and I wonder how how have you been and you and your loved ones been during this pandemic that we have been living through? We actually have been doing very well. Uh, unfortunately, we did contract COVID in December from a family member which was extremely unexpected. So my wife works for a local university in the St. Louis area, and she has not worked at her office since March. Uh, our daughter, who is 16, obviously has been doing school online, uh, but I was working for a university in Illinois, and I still went to work every day. We had a partnership, or that university has a partnership with a, 
another university that has a research lab. And so we were testing every single day. So I knew every single day what my status was as it relates to COVID. And then in December, a family member came to isolate, to quarantine with us because they knew that I was testing every day and my wife and daughter weren't going anywhere. So we could go to our, to my mother and father-in-law's house for Christmas. And that family member brought COVID. And um, unfortunately, my wife had it, uh, the worst symptoms. And my daughter had the next worst symptoms. And for me, it literally was a sore throat and a runny nose. And I don't take that for granted at all, because I know that it could have been a lot worse. But uh, we did um, obviously make it through that. And we have not had any adverse effects afterwards. Uh, I get my first vaccine shot this Friday, actually tomorrow. My wife got her first shot two weeks ago. Our daughter just got signed up last night. So we're all pretty hopeful for, you know, better days. Yeah, as as we're talking, it's Holy Week and this will come out after Holy Week, but it, it, there does, we're not out of the woods yet, but there does seem to be that sense of hopes on the horizon. Yeah. People are, the vaccines are rolling out. Yeah, no, I agree completely. It's, uh, we've had, we had members. So as you know, I, obviously I serve as pastor of a congregation in St. Louis and we had a family who hadn't been there in over a year and they came on Sunday because they were able to get their vaccine. So uh, and it's you and you're a former pastor as well. I mean, and it's not just about showing up in the building. That's not what our faith is about, but it does help people. And it's such an important part of people's lives to be able to get out and to worship together because it's a family. It's a community. And yeah, it was just really nice to see them. And we look forward to seeing all the other people that are going to be able to show up after vaccines or are uh, administered. You kind of alluded to this. You made a comment about how in December you were working for a university and if you have changed jobs since then. And so I wanted to give you a chance to introduce your new role and, and what you're up to these days. So I am now the exec, uh, president and executive director of an organization called Rise Community Development in St. Louis. The website is www.risestl.org, risestl.org. And RISE is a community development corporation and a community development financial institution. And we make better neighborhoods or we help to make better neighborhoods and better communities. So essentially anything that needs to be done in order to make communities uh, more effective, to help city government more effectively administer what is needed to in their communities. We do everything from build housing to consult with city governments, to consult with community-based organizations uh, in the city of St. Louis and St. Louis County, as well as in portions of Illinois. Um, so this was not something that I was looking for. Um, you know this, I'll, I'll share with the rest of the audience. So I've spent the last six years in full-time academia. I was a vice president, chief diversity officer at Greenville University. And prior to that, I had my dream job of serving as professor at Central Baptist Theological Seminary, where I earned my doctor of ministry degree and that is what my life had been geared towards. That's what my dream, all my training, all the writing, all the everything had been geared towards. But prior to academia, I was in community development. I've spent the majority of my life in some aspect of community development, whether it was as a police officer. Uh, I worked in the construction industry. Um, I also was executive director of a social service agency. And then uh, right before I was blessed to go to Central, I was the executive director of a community development corporation. And 
uh, I was not looking for this. And literally it was an act of God. And I don't say that with any hyperbole. It was it was just very clear that this is what I was supposed to be doing. And it was hard for me to say no to it. Uh, so I am looking forward to whatever God is planning on doing through this because I have no idea. I have learned. You and I have talked about this before. I, I understand my life to be a calling. And I ha- it's taken me several years to understand what that calling is. I go to some place where there's transition or where there's some kind of something that's happened and they need healing and reconciliation. And uh, it's not necessarily that the organization's in transition because their president who I'm replacing is retiring, uh, but there's nothing that has gone wrong. So uh, it's somewhat different than what I've done before, but it's in an industry that I've previously been in. And I'm just waiting to see what the Lord does. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, very good. Well, hey, let's talk about your your new book that you have coming out this month, and that is Taking Apart Bootstrap Theology, a subtitle of Gospel of Generosity and Justice. Before we take it apart, and you do this in the book too, first you explain what it is. So maybe we should start there. So when you mention bootstrap theology, what are you, what are you talking about? It's this idea that if you work hard enough, uh, if you keep your nose to the grindstone and do what you're supposed to do, everything in life is going to be fine. So that's the general Americanized version of it, uh, that this is the land of opportunity. All you have to do is work hard, uh, get in line, do what's expected of you, and all these opportunities will occur. And the point of the book is to push back against that and say, no, history shows that that's not true. Uh, Now, I'll give some legitimacy to the idea in the sense that, um, and I mentioned this in the book, that in 2 Thessalonians, Paul has the famous verse where he says, if a man is not willing to work, a man should not eat. But what I try to do in the book is to show the context behind that verse and why it was important then and why it's important now. But another, a little more extended definition of bootstrap theology is in America, we have this idea that, you know, minorities, women, and the poor are somehow either lazy or looking for excuses for why life could not and is not better. And it's this idea that we should stop complaining about our lives and just do what, you know, I'm going to be, and you know me well enough, and hopefully the listeners know me well enough, that, uh, you know, if white men have had to work hard, white men have never had uh, uh, anything given to them, so nobody else should have to not work hard or have anything given to them. And so part of this book is not geared against white men. I don't want it to sound like that at, at all, but I think that our listeners will understand the contrast. But it's this idea that um, you know life is not perfect, whether you're a white male, whether you're a black male, black woman, white woman, you know, other, whatever it is, life is hard for everyone. And we have to recognize not only that life is hard for everyone, but we also, as the church, have to do a better job of not uh, living into this materialistic, nationalistic, whatever-listic kind of mentality that we have taken and replace the gospel with that kind of stuff. And that's the problem with bootstrap theology is that we use those kinds of istic thinking to replace the heart of the gospel, which is God's love for all creation and God's desire to be reconciled with all things. Yeah, one of those uh, phrases that we hear a lot, and you actually do use the phrase in the book and that people mistakenly think is scripture is that God helps those who help themselves. 
And, and and it's not in the Bible, but a lot of people think it is. It's not found anywhere. But again, it's back to this, you know, partly nationalistic, partly. Um, but it's the, again, it's this idea that if I got it, uh, then you should be able to get it. But what we fail to do is recognize that we didn't get what we got on our own. You did not reach where you are just because of your hard work. Someone had to open the door. Someone had to give you the opportunity. And let's be truthful. Sometimes because you fit a particular description, that made the door and the process easier where in reality, because I don't fit that, I won't have those opportunities. I'll give you a couple of examples just as it relates to work. You know, my resume is really long and I don't say that trying to brag, but in the beginning of the book, I talked about the fact that I was influenced by my grandparents. And I tell this story all the time that I am the man that I am because of my grandparents and my grandparents did not graduate from high school. Uh, both of them worked lower level jobs, nothing, uh, you know, that anyone would say to brag about. My grandfather worked in a factory and my grandmother was a domestic. But they understood that no matter how hard they worked or how hard we worked, we were always going to still have to prove ourselves. And there have been multiple times that no matter how much education or how many degrees I have received or earned or have my twin brother, how many degrees he has earned, someone has always still negated our hard work and tried to make it because it was something else. I, I've told you the story before that my twin brother you know, who has four master's degrees and is finishing a doctorate now, earned a position as a director in a Fortune 500 company here in St. Louis. And on his first day, one of his white subordinates said, oh, you're our new affirmative action hire. And my twin brother had to handle that in a very particular way. Uh, I've been told multiple times, well, you're nice, but you just aren't what we're looking for or you don't have this. I mean, even in church settings, I remember applying for uh, a particular uh, leadership position in uh, in a Baptist with a Baptist institution, and I was told I didn't have the right ordination, and that was the reason why I didn't get the job. And when I asked the question, like, "What do you mean I don't have the right ordination? I have ordination through A, B, C, D," and they were like, "Well, no, you don't have this specific ordination that you know everyone else has, and we would hate to hire you and them feel bad because you don't have the exact ordination. And I, my response was just tell me you don't want to give me the job then. Don't don't give me that kind of nonsense. And what I found out was they ended up hiring a good old boy. And that's no way, no other way to say it. They hired an older white man who had been in the system. And I'm not saying that he didn't deserve it. Not saying that he was not a good candidate. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is I was not hired no matter how good or qualified I was. And, you know, the diversity of things that I was told I needed to do and have in my background actually was used against me. It was one of the reasons why they were able to say, nope, you don't, you don't qualify for this. As you walk through the book, after you explain it, you talk about dismantling the bootstrap theology and, and you do this in, in, in a few different ways. And so obviously we won't walk through all of those because we want people to buy the book. <laughs> uh, but I, I did the one that jumped out as I was going through the, the early copy of the book and particularly, you know, it's a conversation we've had a lot this year, post January six, is is that you talk about the the ending nationalistic Christianity, and you've already made a couple of you know uses of the phrase nationalism in this conversation. And so I wonder if you could talk about that because I think that is I think that's one of the the topics with Christian nationalism that we're recognizing right now is a really significant challenge to the church in the United States and. It is definitely something we did. We need to dismantle. 
It's the nationalistic theology or nationalistic Christianity is the confusing of God's story with the story of our nation. It's probably the simplest way to say it. It is this idea that God's destiny or God has destined that the United States is, you know, the preeminent nation and anything that goes against the United States and what people do and the, what they believe is the best interest of the United States goes against God and what God says. One of the things I say very early on in the book is that we are biblically illiterate. And I don't say that trying to be nasty. Uh, example, when, you know, Donald and so my statements do not reveal whether I am a Democrat or Republican, Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, liberal or conservative. What I want is for us to be biblically literate and for us to stand on those principles. And that's not a Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative thing. But Donald Trump was running for reelection. And um, I, I always forget the name of the pastor who's a, he's in Dallas. I forget. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Robert Jeffers. There you go. Robert Jeffers. Somebody tells if I remember correctly, somebody told Robert Jeffers, oh, yeah, you're supposed to turn the other cheek. And Robert Jeffers says, no, I'm not. That's that's not in the Bible. And it's like, wait a minute. That is what Jesus said. What are you talking about? Jesus said it specifically turn the other cheek. He also gave many other examples like that. The, the point, though, is, is our political rhetoric has replaced biblical authority and the biblical narrative. And we can look back in the history and find out when all of this started. And I don't want to bore the listeners because it's in the book. Part of it's in the book. So read the book. Um, but nationalistic Christi, uh, Christianity, nationalistic theology is this idea that the story of our faith is about the United States or has the United States as the center. And then secondarily, it has political parties, one political party in particular at the center, uh, and that's the Republican or the conservative party. And so that has been, I mean, when you hear, who was it who said, I think it was the the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary who said, uh, as a Christian, I have to vote Republican. No, that is not scriptural. That is not what Christianity is about. It's not about a political party. Uh, and it's most definitely not about a political party that, you know, devalues uh, human life. And so one of the challenges we have, I mean, for example, you know, his idea, uh, Moeller's idea was that abortion is such an important topic that all other things come secondarily, which is okay. If that's your belief in scripture, that's your belief in scripture. Just make it consistent. And this is what I mean. What most people don't understand is Albert Moeller is a huge supporter of Israel. Guess what is almost on demand in Israel? Abortions. There's a council in every community or every city where a woman who wants to get an abortion goes to that council and says, here goes what I want. Here goes why can I do this? And it's like at a 97% rate of approval in Israel. But we don't, again, but you tell them that and it would not be a problem. Oh, well, Israel is a political ally. So we're going to let that slide. But wait a minute, it's, it's the inconsistency. The, the bigger point though, again, is it's all built around politics. It's all built around like, how is this best for the United States versus how do we all consistently live out God's word and apply it on a daily basis? Yeah. And what you're doing then is, is obviously, I mean, it's, it's, it's seen as a threat. It can be seen as dangerous because, because as you explain in the book that these other ideas, 
have been melded to our understanding of Christianity, that when you start trying to tear those parts apart, people can see that you can think that you're attacking their very faith uh, when instead you're trying to call them back you know, to Jesus and to the teachings in the Bible. Uh, and so, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely a tough time as we try to push back against some of the heresies in American Christianity to separate the American from the Christianity. Yeah. Well, number one, we have to acknowledge that there's a problem first and foremost, you can't get, you can't move down the road until we say something's going wrong. All right. Our nation is extremely divided. January 6th, we had a gang. I'm, I'm not speaking the Queen's English now. We had a gang of folks rushing the Capitol all over, you know, political ideology. But when someone else does the exact same thing, but they have a different skin tone or a different agenda, then that is criminal versus what these people did on January the 6th. So there is a clear divide. Let's just even use that as the example. So can we say that something's wrong? Can we say that something's wrong, number one, with people rushing the Capitol or rushing a city or rushing a police station or rushing a, a governor's office? OK, but why is it wrong over here, but it's OK over here? And why is it not OK over here, but it's OK over here? Let's at least get to that. Uh, and when we can start having or as we start having those conversations, uh, we can start opening the Bible. The, the thing, though, as you mentioned or you alluded to, is when we do it, we can't read it from a 21st century, you know, United States perspective. We have to go back and go, OK, what did the writer, editors, compilers, whatever it is. And that's that's an argument to itself on whether, you know, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible or not. But, you know, whoever did this, why would they have done it and with what purpose and how would the people who originally heard the stories or read the stories have understood it. Let's get that understanding first and then see if it even applies to the 21st century or to the things that we're talking about. So one of my favorite theologians is a guy named Tim Mackey from the Bible Project. And he gave an example. I just got through teaching a, um, a theological inquiry and theological writing course. And I used this video, I used the video as part of the class. And in the video, he asked the question or he made the statement, you know, Jesus was more serious about the Bible than we are because Jesus wants the Bible to change every aspect of our lives and not just one aspect. And we want one thing or two things. He wanted and wants all things to be changed. Uh, he used the example of um, sex trafficking and said, yes, sex trafficking is horrible and there's no way for us to say that it's not. But it doesn't start with sex trafficking. It starts with the lust that everyone has in their own hearts. We deal with that first and that then we deal with all these other things that come after it. So let's use it, it since we're talking about politics or since the book talks about politics in some way, you know, we all we want our world to be a better. We want the United States to be a better place. But we believe that this political party has the best idea and that's untrue because you know no party but it's not just about trying to do what's best it's true actually it's about power it's about power and the resources and the opportunities that come along with that and in order to to dismantle that to pull to take that apart we have to take away 
we have to deal with that root desire to be in control. And, and actually, to be truthful, we have to take away that root desire or deal with that root desire to be in the place of God, to not that we don't trust God. That's where it seems like all this started in the very beginning in Genesis. Hey, you can have everything but this one thing. Well, how come I can't have that one thing? It doesn't matter. I have given you everything else. Well, but I want, now that you told me I can't have that one thing, I want that one thing. No, it's trust that whatever it is I am doing is in your best interest and it's the right and best thing. But we don't do that. We believe that we have all the answers, that if, if we were just in control or our political party was just in control or our whatever was just in control, then we can make everything right. And that is the last thing that actually happens. Yeah, you're talking about this idea of Jesus, you know, wanting to change our whole lives and not, you know, he didn't just come to die to save our souls in the afterlife. And so a lot of what you are writing about in the book is, you know, economics, for instance. Uh, you talk quite a bit about particularly the mix of, of capitalism and Calvinism and how those have worked together to create this distorted theology that looks at wealth as a sign of God's blessing that if you're poor it must be because you're sinful and God is punishing you and if you're and if you have it's because God has 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 blessed you and so i mean it does seem like there's been an issue of despite the fact that Jesus talked so much about money we we seem to still be led astray on thinking about economics from a, from a biblical that, that, i mean that seems to be at the heart of a, of a lot of what you're talking about in bootstrap theology is is this idea of baptizing an unethical uh, economic system that justifies the haves over the have-nots. It's back to the full story. I mean, the full story of the gospel and the gospel means good news. So the gospel is not just, you mentioned that this is being recorded before Easter and broadcast afterwards. You know, we have, again, gotten this down to the gospel, God's love is all about saving your soul and getting you to heaven, which means implies getting you away from here that where you are now is not the perfect or the best that God has for you, which is completely untrue. The full story includes the Easter event, but the full story of the good news starts in the very beginning where God said, let there be light, let there be everything else, let there be humans, and it was good in God's eyesight. Now, obviously something went wrong and God intentionally did something to try to draw all of that back together. And at the very end of the story, it says that we're not all going away somewhere. God and Jesus are coming down here with us and we will reside in this fully restored whatever. But it's again, back to the, to try to make sure I'm fully answering your question or your statement is we tell an incomplete story. So, if this is the only, if this is, we're supposed to get away from here, if we're supposed to be like our, the end is all about going to heaven, then it really doesn't matter what happens here. And, you know, God just wants me to be happy. Like the prosperity gospel says, God just wants me to be happy. God wants me to be safe. God wants me to be secure. God wants me to drive uh, whatever the newest Tesla is and for me to be able to text and drive and, and wear whatever. But that's that's not the complete that's not that's not the true story. When we look at the example from again, from the beginning of God's story, God gave people the opportunity to work not as a punishment, but as a way to emulate God. 
in the act of creation. That's what work started out as. It started out as part of this relationship of honoring, protecting, cultivating what God's creation as part of our relationship with our creator. Now, again, clearly something happened. Uh, work became something that it was not intended to be. Uh, but again, in Jesus, we are shown a better way that it's not just about money. It's more about protecting the, you know, what is the, you know, the gospel says or the, the scriptures say uh, widows, orphans, the poor, uh, the outcasts, the strangers. God told Israel that don't ever forget, even when you get to the promised land, don't forget what it was like to be a stranger in a foreign land. So treat those who are visitors to your land or who, you know, straggling at the last moment from a different whatever, treat them the way you wanted to be treated. And we forget that. Instead, we punish them. Again, instead, we make them a political football and uh, we use that to part of it is also this fear. We fear people and things that are different from us. And so when you know, when a poor person uh, is asking us for money, we're afraid. Uh, when a, a foreigner comes, we're afraid because we don't know, we don't understand. Uh, and how do we usually respond when we're afraid of something? You know, it's fight or flight. And we will, most of the time in America, we fight. And we ask, we ask everybody else to flee away from us. <laughs> That's right. I'll stand my ground and you better run. <laughs> right. How many laws do we have that say that? Come on now. <laughs> Well, I do want to end on on maybe a little more hopeful note because one of the things you do in the book is you know you identify this bootstrap theology and you dismantle it, but then you also talk about replacing it with what you call a gospel of generosity and justice, and I think that is important that that you're not just offering a critique, but you're also trying to point us to something better. And so I wonder if you could give us a little taste of of what you're hoping that we can recapture in this gospel. I'm hoping we again, we we recapture the full story that we don't just focus on one thing that we tell the entire story that God created all things and all people out of love and a desire to be in relationship with them. And it's our privilege to emulate what God has done since the creation of time is to love and to honor those who God has created. Now, that's going to take sacrifice from all of us. And that's, the, again, the, the point where we usually turn our nose up and say, I don't, this is way too hard or this is not what I thought it was. Uh, but here's the thing that we forget. Again, what did God tell Israel? When you have enough, there's enough for everyone else as well. Don't reap all the crops. Don't reap all the wheat. Leave some available for women and for children, for these foreigners because I am the one who is providing all of this to you. So you don't ever have to worry about having enough because I am going to make sure that you have enough. Again, because we don't tell the full story, we don't believe, we don't stand in God's ability to provide. Instead, we feel like we need to hoard and we need to make sure that we get ours and it's up to someone else to get their own. Uh, again, we not only dishonor them, we dishonor what God wants for us. So I will say this. Let me say it this way. Number one, tell the full story. Number two, become more biblically literate because the things that we do today, they it clearly goes against what the scriptures tell us God wants for God's creation and what Jesus told us that God wants for this creation and what Jesus wants for his church. Tell the full story, become more uh, biblically literate. And number three, 
instead of judging people, put yourself in their shoes. I mean, plain and simple. But again, this is what the Bible tells us. Love God first with all your heart, mind and soul and love others as you love yourself. I mean, what is the old book? I, everything I need to know in life. I learned in kindergarten. That I mean, that's it's, it's true. Just do the simple things. And we're still trying to learn it, which is why we need uh, more books like this one. Well, I'm hoping that more people read it, buy it, and uh, implement it into their lives. Well, Terrell, this is this really is, I think, a, a timely book. It's you're just thinking about all that we've been through in the past year: the divisive election, the pandemic, there were the protests against racial injustices. I mean, we literally have the trial happening in Minneapolis right now. We've talked about January sixth. I mean, there, there's so much that's going on, and uh, we need some Christian leaders that can help us tear apart, to strip off the excess that we have added onto, that we have tacked onto, and in many places we have replaced the gospel with. And so I appreciate the fact that you are doing that and encourage everyone. The book will be out later in April, Taking Apart Bootstrap Theology. It's already available for pre-order wherever you get your books. And so check it out. Terrell, thank you so much for your time, for being with us and for writing this book. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. And my prayer for the church is that, again, we would tell the full story and that we would let the full story be lived out in our own lives. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. As Terrell mentioned in his interview, you can learn more about his current ministry at risestl.org. As always, you'll find us at wardenway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review. It really does help more people to find the show. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we greatly appreciate it. And all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button. And whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of that magazine, if you're not a subscriber, you really are missing out. So I have a special offer for you. Get half off your first year. Just go to tinyurl.com slash wwoffer. If you have any comments or feedback about this program, you can send those to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>